G'day, g'day guys. Now before we dive into today's show, I want to let you know that some of you may be aware that over the past eight years, I have built a substantial multifamily real estate portfolio here in the US worth over half a billion dollars. And in that time, my passive investors have received fantastic double digit returns. And now you too can invest directly into my deals for as little as $50,000. So if you're an interested investor, head over to reedgoosens.com to find out more. That's reedgoosens.com. Now back into the show. People know what they're getting themselves into and you know, hey, you're saving 250, 550 bucks a month in rent. You know, there's a reason why that is. You have to share something. There's, you know, there's always going to be friction amongst tenants. And, you know, those are those are property management issues that arise. Hey, I'm not going to lie and say there's not a higher operating expense associated, a higher turnover expense. But uh, Brad Hairgraves, who's the chairman of Common, he's the largest, the largest, you know, operator of co-living beds. He just did a, a great piece on his blog about how, you know, even with an average tenancy of, say, 16 to 18 months, they're still maintaining 96 occupancy. You know, they're beating all the, if not in line with all the traditional apartment investors when it comes to occupancy and turnover and and really holding strong on metrics. Welcome to Investing in the US, a podcast for real estate investors, business owners, and aspiring entrepreneurs looking to break into the US market. Join Reid as he interviews go-getters, risk-takers, and the best in the business about their journey towards financial freedom and the sheer joy of creating something from nothing. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the US podcast. From Los Angeles, I'm your host, Reid Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, I'm glad that you've all tuned in to learn from my incredible guests, and each and every one of them are the cream of the crop here in the United States when it comes to real estate investing, business investing, and entrepreneurship. Each show, I try and tease out their incredible stories of how they have successfully created their businesses here in the US, how they've created financial freedom massive amounts of cash flow and ultimately create extraordinary lives for themselves and their families. Life by design, as I like to say. Hopefully, these guests will inspire all of my cracking listeners, which are you guys, to get off the couch and go and take massive amounts of action. If these guys can do it, so can you. Now, as you know, I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners, which is you guys, and there's absolutely no BS on this show, just straight into the nuts and bolts. Now, if you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give us a review on iTunes and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Reed Goosens. You can find the show wherever you podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher and Google Play, but you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel. So head over to reedgoosens.com, click on the video link and it will take you to the video recordings of these podcasts where you can see my ugly mug but the beautiful faces of my guests each and every week. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show. Turn the show, I have the pleasure of speaking with Matt Ryan from Revive. Now, Matt's passion in life is building companies that tackle socioeconomic issues through entrepreneurship. He strongly believes in the ability of the private sector to solve society's most complex problems and that entrepreneurs are at the foundation of all of it. Now, Revive is on a mission to solve problem of affordable, accessible housing that's close to job centers while yielding market 
rate returns for investors. So I'm really, really pumped and excited to have Matt on the show today to share his incredible experience and his knowledge in the affordable housing space. But enough of me, let's get him out here. G'day, Matt. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today, mate? Doing great, buddy. How about you? Oh, I'm doing great. We're just having a little bit of chat in the background for those people who are not following us on YouTube. Matt's uh, got a little surfboard in the background. We're just talking. Uh, do, do you get out much in the uh, in the San Francisco Bay? I know there's that weird wave that sometimes the right swell goes underneath the the bridge there. That uh, it's, a nice, it's a nice left-hander. Yeah, I joke with everyone. Don't uh, don't let the surfboard fool you. You know that's not even a hard top. That's a soft top. So uh. I'm a, <laughs> I am a terrible surfer. It's great exercise. I love getting out in the ocean, but. Uh, you know, here in San Francisco, we're a little, bit, a little limited on storage space for stuff like that. So at the end of the day, it made a good prop. And, you know, I'd say I probably play the instruments behind me more than I actually get on the surfboard. But yeah, it's one of those things I'd like to do more of and actually get good at. But it's been a challenge. I actually enjoy paddle surfing a lot. And I've done mm-hmm. it in Hawaii. Um, you know, but it's it, that's it's a big investment and a big undertaking. Right. So I had yeah. to find that, be able to edge the time out for that. My uh, my few things in life I like, you know, keeping fit, getting good sleep, eating well, but surfing is my sort of return to nature. So I try and surf once a week. I'm a big avid surfer. The whole reason I live in Los Angeles is because I can surf. And um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, tra- I'm planning on going to Sayulita here for my birthday coming up and trying to get to Bali sometime this year for a, for a oh, surf trip. Fantastic. Yeah, I've heard about that. Yeah, see fly fishing, backcountry camping, that's those are my two gems. That's how yeah. I that's how I love release. It. So love it, love it. Well, enough about our backstories. I want to get into it. Can you? Uh, the first question I ask all my guests when they come on the show is, "Can you rewind the clock and tell me how you made your first ever dollar as a kid?" Yeah, it's funny. I was talking about this with a with an investor yesterday at breakfast. We were kind of sharing those initial stories, and um, I remember I was maybe just start to being in high school or in junior high, and a buddy of mine was kind of bragging about how much money he made in his lawn business, and you know, I was, I was broke. My parents, you know, they gave me a little bit allowance, but never enough. And uh, I said, you know what, I'm going to, if he can do it, I can do it. Right. Which is really kind of interestingly enough, that mentality has kind of carried me through my career. And so I went around knocking door to door, probably knocked on a hundred homes, you know, got six clients for that summer and just serviced those clients for the entire summer. I, you know, I borrowed the the yard tools for my dad, you know, and had a push mower, didn't even have a, you know, big fancy riding mower like he did. And, you know, loaded it up in my back of my Ford Explorer. And that was my first, that was my first hustle and just kind of taught me, you know, what it takes to just kind of pull yourself up by the bootstraps and get out there and, and you know, get business and then service that business. And it was a great yeah. experience for me. I, I Doing that sort of uh, blue collar, hard yakka, as they say in Australia. I remember um, tying steel and building pools in the summer in, in Australia. And it's freaking hot down in those in the you know six te- six to ten feet below the surface, and just you know thanking uh, whoever the hell's up there uh, that uh, <laughs> that uh, you know I was going to university and you know eventually not going to have to be you know be, not that there's anything wrong with labor being a laborer, but like that that there was you know I was using more than just my physical skills uh, physical labor to, to to make an earning so walk us through the journey of you know how you got into revive clearly there was there's probably a, a, some sort of backstory before you get into entrepreneurship so what was it and how, did, how what does it look like yeah i mean i watched my father work corporate America for 25 years. And, you know, I was young enough, and but also old enough to kind of see his and hear about his struggles. And so in 93, he actually moved down to South Carolina, where where I grew up. Uh, we were in the Midwest at the time and moved around, you know, almost four times just to accommodate his job. And um, he got the opportunity to go out on his own and, and work. He worked for International Truck and Engine Company and 
he got the opportunity to take over a bankrupt dealership. And he was so miserable with corporate that he's like, you know, I'm just going to take this chance. And he worked there for an entire year before he moved our, you know, our family down to South Carolina. And, you know, I say for me, my entrepreneurial journey started watching him, you know, with the freedom that he got, the wealth that he was able to create, but really just the freedom that he, that he created and in, in the ability to create kind of his own brand. You know, he had struggled working for corporate, the bureaucracy that existed there, you know, he's always kind of been a freewheeling guy, you know, no BS, shoot you straight. And, you know, those things didn't always navigate in the corporate space, you know. Um, and so for me, I kind of kept that entrepreneurial spirit within my own endeavors. I went back and worked for him for three years. I realized that wasn't what I wanted to do. Um, you know, he kind of threw me into the deep end on some stuff. And I was looking for a career at that point. And uh, I actually got into energy efficiency and green building sector because I found out that, you know, I, I got interested. I've always been an environmentalist. Um, I got really interested in this local controversial coal plant, you know, and I remember reading the story of, hey, a 3% reduction in energy usage would mitigate the need for this controversial coal plant. And I'm like, this isn't how that can't be that challenging. Right. Mm. And at the time, Secretary Chu of um, under the Obama administration, they were doing a lot of initiatives and funding for studies of energy efficiency and implementing energy efficiency measures in residential and commercial buildings. And they was supposed to couple along with solar and, you know, clean energy generation. This was demand side, you know, um, um, solutions. And it was supposed to be a very blossoming industry that would also help kind of resurrect this very distressed construction industry of 09 and 010. So I dove full in. I took went to South Face Energy Institute in Atlanta. I passed all my certifications in six months. I started cold calling on local builders, you know, residential builders doing Energy Star certification. And three months later, I landed my first contract and I moved up to Charlotte to locate the business there. And, uh, you know, within four months, the contract that was supposed to go for nine months to a year completely ran out <laughs> and I had to sink or swim. And I built the profit, you know, the company into profitability after three years. But I, you know, I was cutting my teeth in every direction, you know, just trying to trying to make stuff work. The industry hadn't really taken off. We were kind of becoming glorified subcontractors, you know, in addition to consultants and um, other people had tried to grow and scale that type of business. I came out to San Francisco to meet one of them around 2015. You know, I'd been in the business for about five and a half years and was kind of trying to figure out my next move. I started buying real estate along the way. I bought it for, you know, a short sale condo in Charlotte. And it was maybe right around that time or just a year before I had bought a foreclosed duplex. Um, so fast forward, basically the industry, I said, I don't think this is where I want to go. You know, I got to find something else. Uh, so I moved to San Francisco. I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I had tried to raise capital for that endeavor. I said, I want to, you know, I want to start companies and raise capital. And that's what I want to do. And I'm going to go to the epicenter to do it. And I always joke with people that, you know, I'm the only idiot who moved to San Francisco to actually start a private equity company versus, you know, a VC backed startup in technology. Um, you know, but it really came to fruition because of my experience in the duplex that I bought. There was a community member there. Her name was Miss Pam. She worked or she lived two doors down from us. And she actually worked at my my now stepdaughter's school. And she walked to school every day where she was the chef. She, um, you know, this this duplex that I bought was in a very up and coming, call it gentrifying neighborhood. She took the bus every night to her second shift to take care of her granddaughter. And one night my wife and I got talking about it. We said, you know, hey, well, what happens to the Miss Pams when more people start moving into this neighborhood and buying up properties and trying to flip them and maybe pushing her out? And that was kind of my first, 
you know, identity with displacement and gentrification. So I wrote out a one pager. I got a meeting with a local developer through a friend of a friend. Excuse me one second. I've been battling a cold. And I took it to him and he said, this is great. This is a fantastic idea. I called it the Miss Pam project. You know, I wanted to <laughs> revitalize this neighborhood, but I wanted to do it in a way that was cognizant of the existing members while also providing, you know, kind of for-profit solutions and, you know, tailoring, excuse me, ta- tailoring to the new people coming into the to the market, right? Everyone's seeking affordable rents, which is, which is not uncommon. And uh, he said, Matt, this is a fantastic idea. But you gotta understand that you need to make a return for your investors. If you can balance that, and you can balance what you're trying to accomplish, you're going to be successful beyond you know your imagination. And I didn't know it at the time. You know, fast forward 12 months as I was trying to navigate a career. Then you know, but that was the genesis. That was revive, right? And so we mm-hmm. fast forward into that, and I dove into that very quickly. We went in the value add space. Um, that was kind of our initiative or excuse me, that was kind of our initial piece is we were going to tackle, I call it the social side of value add investing. Um, to save time, you know, we came up against a lot of market forces that kind of, uh, you know, had, we had to put that on hold. And so it was kind of like, what's the next thing for us that really fits in our thesis, right? What's the next kind of product or or idea that we can launch? And that's when we went into co-living. And, and frankly, we've never kind of looked back from there. We've been aggressively pursuing that since about 2019. That's that's an incredible story. Um, where in South Carolina did you grow up? Uh, Columbia. Okay. I mean, I've, I've just bid on three deals down there, actually. <laughs> I've, I just bought a, a 281 units in Greenville, South Carolina. Really like that market down oh, there. Oh, Greenville's it's, fantastic. In 15 yeah. and 16, you know, when I, I was just getting started, I didn't have the muscle, you know, or, or the power to do it yet. I was looking at deals in Greenville. It was one of those markets that I mm-hmm. thought was just going to, you know. we Good just, little X factor. Yeah. And I just didn't have, I had, I've always had a good intuition for market selection, but you know, I just didn't have the infrastructure in place to take down those deals yet. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a big, what if for me, I'm happy you got in. It's, it's a killer market. Yeah. It's a great little market. And we keep, we keep looking actually, was it's affordability play that we're doing. We, can, we don't need to talk about that, but on just slightly another note there, have you ever heard of Cameron Cole, uh, the, the energy efficiency company that goes around to major, my wife used to work for them back in the day, and she's actually in environmental science and, and you know, do these energy audits for larger companies to determine where they can cut costs, right? Yeah. Um, so just thought that might, you might've come across it. But on our side of the RSN, on an investment side, like one of the basic things we always do, particularly in older buildings, is it's such a great ROI is replace all the toilets with low flow, low flow yep. toilets, you know, low flow shower knobs. Um, and it's such an easy way to prove that, that you spend $100,000, it could save you twenty dollars to $40,000 a year in NOI. That's a, on a five cap. That's an incredible value add. Um, but there is so much inefficiency in and around you know, the building sector. Yes. Right? I, I come from structure. I'm a structural engineer. I've, I've built a lot of stuff here in California. Um, a lot of people are trying to move to this like Katera, which obviously went bankrupt, if you know who they are. Oh, very Yeah, you, know, you know, like the sort of this um, in a box, in a warehouse sort of manufacturing because there's a lot of waste that's produced with building products. But then you have old, the older aging you know, communities that we buy with the HVACs and the inefficiencies and energies and the, the insulation and, you know, trying to still provide that affordable housing 
without having to take on a $10 million project on a, you know, a yep. $10 million, you know, investment, right? And, you know, 281 units I bought in Greenville, South Carolina, we paid $35 million for that. You know, I'm going to probably spend $5 million revitalizing that asset, but it's not going to hit all the the windows and the, you know, insulation. And it just, there comes a point where you've got to look at what's, what's going to move rents that's still affordable, that can still get, you know, an ROI to an investor. So, I'd be interested in you know coming with that guise of engineer um, energy efficiency. Just before we get into the revive stuff, what's your thoughts on you know how we become more efficient as buildings are continuing to age, right? And you're getting to a point in some markets where you know it's it, the existing asset is more expensive than brand new build, but yep. to go through the re-entitlements and all that sort of stuff. So how do you go and breathe new life into a 50 year old asset that's going to last for another 50 years? Yeah, I mean, going back to you know my the work that I did as calling a trade as a sub, we really were we were kind of glorified building scientists, right? Mm-hmm. So we were looking at energy efficiency, comfort, indoor air quality, and durability. Those were kind of the four components, and it relayed itself into this other value of what we consider just high performance construction, right? Pulling all those sub trades together, the insulator, the air sealing, just a fancy term for sealing up cracks and crevices, you know, reducing the number of conditioned air that escapes from a building. Really interesting trade, very difficult to train and implement, right? And so the thing, the other, so there's there's putting all that together, right? As a subcontractor, it's very, very challenging. And that's what we were kind of hoping to do. But it's it's very difficult because as you mentioned, there's consumers who are like, well, yeah, I'm going to save 75 bucks, you know, but are you going to solve my problem? And that's where we were kind of experiencing was like we were solving people's problems and there was value there, but they didn't want to overspend to save 50 bucks on a utility. And it brings me back to another issue, which is you don't pay your tenant's utility bills, right? So what's the incentive for you? You do the water fixtures because you probably pay the water bill, right? And so there's a savings to you. So there's always been a disaggregation between the tenant who pays the utility bill and the developer who implements. And so you really... We've started to implement programs. You know, Fannie and Freddie have a green mortgage program. There's C-PACE financing, which allows you to go in and basically finance these improvements and do it onto your property tax bill, which then carries through title if you transfer it. So that owner doesn't endure all that cost. And those mechanisms are there, but they're not, they haven't reached scale, right? And so we've, and I think we haven't reached scale because there hasn't been the right incentives to, you know, create enough profit extra for an investor to say, hey, this is worth my time, energy, and effort. And you're right, there is still an incredible amount of waste. And you know, air quality and comfort, those are important elements to a tenant experience. And I think as we continue to implement more, you know, strict building codes, that's kind of the other problem too, is like we don't like mandates. We like incentives as investors, right? Um, you know, that we, we hopefully can kind of clear the path for more implementation and advanced building practices. But you're right, there's a huge gap there. And a lot of it's just education. And we we spend a lot of time educating track home builders of like, yeah, this costs more, but how much time are you spending on callbacks because you're trying to install one HVAC system on a three-story building versus installing two, right? And and what is that? What's the value to your tenant? What's the value of all your time that you're spending now diagnosing and troubleshooting this because you maybe didn't design your HVC system correctly, or you went a little skimpy and tried to do one system when the system really needed two, or maybe a system in a mini split, you know? And, and so there's always that cost that you don't see down the road 
that investors haven't really, we haven't really pinned that down as an industry and we still had a long way to go. And, you know, that all the problems that you're talking about is kind of the reason I said, Hey, you know, I'm just going to take my knowledge and expertise and, and use this to implement in my projects. And I know it's going to benefit me and, 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 you know, put my product above the rest, but, you know, there's often instances where we're paying more and, you know, there's probably not a direct ROI in that, or at least a tangible one. Right. Like I can think of two assets I own right now, both with um, boiler chiller systems, right? And 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 ha- and they're built in the seventies, and they're coming up to fifty years old. And you're like, does it make? You know, we've got we've got the HVAC lines from the boiler chiller that are causing issues, so we've got to go replace that. That's three or four hundred thousand dollars. Is there is there come a point where you just go and flip the whole system to being individual HVAC and where you put it, is it on the roof or is it on the ground? And, and it's like, does that even give me an ROI? Does that increase the rents? Does it, it doesn't increase the rents, but it may, you may, it will save the next buyer from having to go and troubleshoot all that crap and you're boxed in that issue. But there's so many aging buildings out there. You can't just keep going and knocking down and rebuilding and knocking down and rebuilding. You have to at some point revitalize. And that's where those, those programs are so vital for investors like me where I'm like, well, I don't see an ROI right now, but maybe if I could get my taxes abated or something like that, I will go and invest in this community and do the windows and do the HVAC and stuff that yeah. doesn't as it doesn't move the rent, but helps prolong that life, the building's life. And maybe that building's going to continue to be a, a quote unquote affordable or, or workforce housing, you know, call it sub $1,500 rents, then maybe I'll be more incentivized to do it. So I think, yeah. The, and the other thing you didn't mention is like, it's so fragmented. Each county, each state, each city totally. is, is, is you know, so different. You know, you go to South Carolina, they've got a different viewpoint to than San Francisco, right? So, yep. you know, are they that incentivized well, to, to do stuff? And interestingly enough, there's more of a demand in, you know, California is overly stringent in all these things. North Carolina has one of the most, or Northern California has one of the most mild climates of anywhere in the country. Right. South Carolina is an extreme climate, right? You've been there before. It is extremely high humidity. And we get down to 25 degrees. It needs it the most, right? right? Because of because there's so much energy intensity there because of the what you have to cool and all those things. And yeah, I mean, the, the other instance, you know, without going too far in it is, do you install a window HVAC unit in the wall for value add? And we have standalone gas heaters that are kind of legacy, or do you endure the cost of a mini split and then mm-hmm. do multiple heads? And, you know, we did a system where we did the HVAC and then we did an in-wall plug-in fan system hmm. and that helps carry, you know, that cooling load into the other bedroom. But we're, you know, after you look at the life cycle of the in-wall heaters, no one wants to replace them. And then the AC units, the even the nice quality ones for four or five, 600 bucks, you get three years out of them best, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know? So that's where you come back. Remember I said the fourth prong is the durability component. And it's not just the durability of the material, it's the durability of the mechanical system that you're installing. And there's just not enough information, you know, kind of putting that all together. And in a second life, maybe I'll have some time to revisit some of those things. Well, it's you such know? a, it, it's uh, my next question was going to be, and I want to want to move on from this, but it's just like, yeah, well, it seems like you got jaded by it, right? You you, you couldn't find solutions and it, 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 but it's such a need there. So, you know, yeah. I know we, we, we can't solve the problems today on this show, but it's for those people listening. It's like there needs to be progression as investors that we buying existing deals to provide that affordable you know, workforce housing. 
how do you, how do we solve for it? And I, I don't have the answer, right? I, I, I don't yeah. pretend to have the answer. I'm just I'm an investor. You're an investor. We're a housing provider, but I do know some of these places need a ton of work. Yeah. And I ain't, and I ain't putting my hand up all the time to do it because it just doesn't make sense from it from from because I've got a fiduciary responsibility to my investors. Well, it's like everything so, else. You can have all the right equipment, and this was our big mantra too when we did it. The right equipment is nothing without the right installer. Mm-hmm. And that's where you, 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 unless you have that, it doesn't matter what you buy, what incentives you put in. You got to have the people who understand the systems and understand the building as a whole. And mm-hmm. that's still where we struggle as an industry. You know that old industry that I was in, and that would be the jadedness that I that I say I have is that we just it, it wasn't conducive, you know, to growth. For those of you who are interested in staying up to date with all the latest happenings in my business, or to learn more about passively investing directly into my multifamily value-add deals, then head over to reedgoosens.com and sign up for my monthly newsletter. By signing up, you'll automatically be notified about my new up-and-coming investment opportunities. You'll be able to stay up to date with all the latest real estate news here in the United States and much, much more. So head over to reedgoosens.com and sign up today. Now, back into the show. Let's now pivot into Revive. And, and you, you, you there's, it seems like there's a couple of iterations. You mentioned market forces earlier. So talk to a little bit about what you encountered that made you stop what you originally had planned out, set out to do. Yeah, we wanted to create a tenant-focused you know, retention model that we could scale for, for value-add investing, right? Keeping tenants, doing the necessary upgrades, implementing the energy efficiency and green building measures we talked about. And we kind of put to perform together that when you factored in construction costs, leasing costs, and vacancy costs, that if we could get to a rent escalation, you know, a, to sign a two-year lease with someone with a pretty steady rent escalation, sometimes 15, 18%, maybe more, but we would provide code level upgrades. You know, a lot of these apartments... The, the conditions of a lot of things were extremely aged, right? Carpet, you know, bathroom fixtures, you name it, vanities. Not everyone wants granite countertop. They just want these things to function, right? And so we could make the necessary code level upgrades, keep them in and not have to worry about displacing people as part of our plan. And, you know, there's two main factors. Sacramento passed rent control shortly after, which in my opinion, it's not a good policy. It's not conducive to the things that we were trying to create, which is, okay, we're taking an equity hit here, okay, on these things. But if we had, say, a debt provider that could come in and give us 75 basis points, you know, like a Fannie Freddie on top of this to help finance and close the gap on the loss to lease that we have because of what we're doing, you know, could that incentivize more developers to focus on tenant retention instead of displacing people, okay? Or could we get a property tax abatement for doing that? And there's models that kind of exist, but they typically exist for a larger scale. And we see a significant need in this, you know, under 50 unit, right? The majority of the apartment buildings in the United States are actually that size, right? They're mom and pop owners. So it's like, what are we incentivizing and call it to, to, to uh, steal a term from Daniel Paralek uh, and Opticos, missing middle type value add. And so anyways, rent control through wrench in that, the macro conditions were exactly that. Everybody and their mother was getting in the C and B value add. And so we were just seeing, you know, again, we were trying to focus on a model that we're, you know, we're using a little bit less return for a little bit of goodwill, right? And, and something that we were trying to do different. And that if we scaled it, eventually we could get to a point where we could find that solution on the back end. And I just said, you know what? 
it's something there's a lot of resistance. There's a lot of headwind here, especially with people going after these assets. You know, what's another pivot? And it was around that time that Opportunity Zones was coming online, which we were using the Economic Innovation Group's data sets because Revive, you know, focused on revitalizing neighborhoods was very core to their data was very core to what we were trying to do. And so when we saw the Ozones and then we saw co-living on top of that as kind of an innovative approach to affordable housing, we said, man, this really makes sense. Maybe this is something that, you know, is away from the herd enough that we can go after. And where we were seeing deals, people taking down value add deals that didn't even cash flow, you know, a co-living deal because you're getting a higher rent per square foot and a higher NOI. Now all of a sudden we could eke out a cash flow on a high buried entry market like a Sacramento or an Oakland or Berkeley that people weren't normally getting. So we thought there would be a lot of demand for this type of product. Um, and that's ultimately why we pivoted. Just quickly explain to the listeners what co-living is. It's a written bedroom strategy where we're renting directly to say you as a, as a prospective tenant, and we're furnishing the common areas. We're taking care of the utilities expenses for you. That's inclusive of your rent. Uh, we're including things like cleaning, there's scheduled community activities. I've heard of catering, you name it. But basically, it's a much more frictionless turnkey model to the, we call it the Craigslist model, where people are moving into high density areas, cities with major you know, job producing cores, going into a three, four, five bedroom, trying to bring their rent down versus going and get a studio, right? That's been right. going on for decades. That housing type has existed for almost a century, right? So the beginning of, uh, uh, you know, and so... But now all of a sudden we have these operators moving in and making it very frictionless for these tenants. And so for the development side, there's become a robust demand for those types of properties. And that's essentially what it is. Um, what's the, I know, have you seen, uh, when you say frictionless, issues with the product around having to share share a common space and essentially have roommates? Like, has that been a big barrier in the projects that you've brought to market? Uh, in my understanding, traditionally, no, it's not. People know what they're getting themselves into. And, you know, hey, you're saving 250, 550 bucks a month in rent. You know, there's a reason why that is. You have to share something. There's, you know, there's always going to be friction amongst tenants. And, you know, those are those are property management issues that arise. Hey, I'm not going to lie and say there's not a higher operating expense associated, a higher turnover expense. But uh, Brad Hairgraves, who's the chairman of Common, he's the largest, mm -hmm. the largest, you know, operator of co-living beds. He just did a, a great piece on his blog about how, you know, even with an average tenancy of say 16 to 18 months, they're still maintaining 96 occupancy. You know, they're beating all the, if not in line with all the traditional apartment investors when it comes to occupancy and turnover and, and really holding strong on metrics, you know, so it's, you know, that's just, it's just kind of the nature of the beast. You got to know what you're getting yourself into and have a good operator in place. Walk us through what the model of Revive looks like today. If, you know, I'm an investor or what are you doing? Walk me through an investment model yeah, yeah. We're right, right now. Right now, we're stabilizing our $13.5 million in portfolio across three properties, right? And, well, actually four. We just completed our fourth. Um, and we're actively looking to continue to look for value-add opportunities conducive to co-living setup, small-scale co-living, under 50 beds, 20 at a minimum. Um, but we also are trying to bring on equity partners to start building out a development pipeline because, frankly, trying to find existing assets um, for co-living is extremely challenging, right? It, 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 Purpose-built co-living is really kind of the wave of the future. Um, we feel like there's other systematic ways in which you can do housing, microdevelopments. That's another market segment of this kind of affordable by design market that's growing. 
And, uh, you know, that's, we're very bullish on that for all the reasons and kind of the things we alluded to in our original thesis. And, you know, for us, for us, it's now like going from the 40 units to the hundred to the thousand, right. And just continuing to, to be a leader in this, you know, as a developer of co-living and we feel like there's a pretty open runway for that. Yeah, no, I think I, I happen to share an office with a good buddy of mine, um, Beach City Capital, and he's doing a, I think it's a 25, no, 50 unit co-living space in uh, Mar Vista here. I've also sat in um, in Hermosa Beach. We won't get into the politics of Hermosa Beach, but, you know, there's a bit of a pushback, a bit of NIMBYism going on totally. with like, you know, why are you bringing this dormitory style? You know, it's essentially student housing for adults. <laughs> Pretty right? much. And, and, and it's, it's hostel living essentially, but on a nicer scale and trying to get local cities to, to get on board. Um, I have seen a bit of pushback. Have you found the same pushback in the markets you're targeting? Yeah, I mean, so far the projects that we've taken on, we've converted, they're small scale. So we've either converted them to the existing residential zoning codes Right. And so that we look at projects that we don't have to go to a rezoning board. Right. We don't have community input. So mm. it's called we you know, you've probably heard the term zoning by right. Yep. So we haven't had to do that thus far. When we go to redevelop and redevelop assets, you know, if we're buying raw land and redeveloping, which really wouldn't be our MO, but maybe we find a great deal that's to happen. Yeah. I mean, I think there's definitely headwinds. The nice thing is, is that there's zoning reform that's kind of sweeping the United States, right? The NIMBYs are getting called out. And the interesting thing that's happening is the majority of the zoning reforms that have already happened, like in LA and other areas, they're much more conducive to this type of housing because the rent that you're delivering, that's where the term affordable by design comes from, is truly affordable. It's easy to, it's less, you know, it's less difficult to sit into a community planning meeting and say, Oh, but these are going to be luxury apartments, you know, $4,000 a bedroom. And, uh, you know, it, we don't want this type of housing. This is luxury. This is only going to service the highest end versus, well, this is housing that's going to be $1,500 a room and, you know, available to people with 80 to 120 of the area medium income. This is the retail worker who can't afford to live in Oakland or can't afford to live in Sacramento downtown right now if they were to rent a studio. And I think that's the interesting thing is that a lot of the messaging around NIMBYism is against, call it more luxury housing, top of the market housing, but we're building housing without a tax subsidy at the bottom 15, 20% of the rental market. And it's going to be increasingly difficult for those people to stand there in the way of those projects when you got, you know, again, that barista, that recent college grad saying, hey, I'm not opposed to this housing. And you're seeing that more and more of the younger generation mobilizing around the Yimby movement, because frankly, you know, the people who are standing in those meetings are the people that have owned a single family home and been there 15, 20 years. And I get that they don't want an apartment building built next to them. You know, and that's, that's an issue we'll, we'll avoid for today. Right. But the fact remains that, you know, we got 45 million G Gen Z's hitting the marketplace over the next 10 years, over the next decade. And they're paying on average of 42 to 44% of their income to rent. And that's not sustainable. That's not the American dream. That's not what is going to make them a productive generation of the future. And they're already seeing similar headwinds that my generation, the millennials saw coming out of 08, 09. We don't need to repeat those mistakes. And so I think for us, we've kind of got the narrative behind us. And, and I think that a lot of the, where I was trying to go with that is a lot of the zoning reforms are conducive to this type of housing, which I think is great. 
I completely agree. And um, having a background in ground up construction as well, and just how difficult it is to try and get things built. You know, most major cities, you know, who who've got a lot of people. When pe- people, you know, assholes. Uh, it's, everyone's got one, like an opinion, right? And so yep. when everyone, when you bring a lot of people together and you go out to community opinion, which you need to do, which in, in zone, don't get me wrong, you do need to do that when you're, when you're getting your projects approved, but trying to get the buy-in from everyone um, when it's in, you know, in the guise of uh, community enrichment to try and make sure that the barista or the, the checkout gal or guy can have a somewhere affordable to live is really quite important. And I think co-living is, is a step in the right direction. Um, you know, hopefully not a band-aid step, you know, back to what we were talking about earlier with the existing housing. You can't just keep building new stuff because you're saying, you know, the the the, the really the, the product to build it from scratch really is the only way to do it with co-living. Um, so it's been an extremely interesting conversation, my friend. I could I can, can talk your ear off and next time I'm in San Francisco, we should definitely meet up. Um, but I guess where in the next sort of five to 10 years, where do you see Revive going to in terms of a platform? Yeah, we want to continue to drive a truck through this co-living model, you know, and, and that's, we want to become a dominant player in that space. That's our call it MVP, you know, our minimum viable product. Uh, in the Once we get through that, I'd like to pivot back to our North Star, which is being a non-asset specific, but area specific developer. You know, I always tell people we the whole premise of Revive is to go back to the Miss Pam's neighborhood. How do we turn that neighborhood around and make it conducive where we can keep her in the neighborhood, but still provide housing? Mm-hmm. And being a for-profit developer, there's a nonprofit element to what we're doing that we would, you know, we would work with local agencies and governments to mitigate, you know, barriers for building all types of housing, you know, very much a neighborhood specific approach uh, for, a ho- for a host of reasons, right? And And for us, from my perspective and my early thesis of Revive is that, you know, being able to do that would mitigate some of the risk associated with real with real estate investing, which is you often get trapped in the macro cycle of whatever your sector is or segment is. And then you got capital, you don't make money unless you allocate capital, right? And what do you do? You're like, we either make money or we sit on our hands and we don't do anything and not make money. And so let's, we got to get this capital allocated and then that's where people make mistakes, right? That's what creates these issues. And, uh, you know, for us, we, I still very much a big believer in that approach, not just for the social element, but for, you know, the risk mitigation. And so navigating back to that North star in time, I think would make sense, but you know, that's the one thing about a successful business is you, you got to have an MVP. You got to have something that you can just rubber stamp and print and, and dominate at. And that's, that's what we're, we're doing with co-living right now. Cause it just checks all the boxes for us. I love it. I love it, my friend. Look, at the end of every show, we'd like to dive into the top five investing tips. Ready to get into it? Sure, let's do it. Mate, question number one is, what's the daily habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? Every single night, I try to flush out what's in my sauna projects and at the very least, look at my Google calendar and make sure that I have the next day planned accordingly and that anything that I, a meeting that I did or that I had that I didn't follow up on, or I don't have, make sure those things are plugged in. Because I think the worst thing you can do is go through your day meeting to meeting or interaction to interaction, not go in, record those things, do the proper follow-ups, and then do the same thing the next day, right? You're, you're going to mm-hmm. be incredibly ineffective. That to me is the the biggest you know ROI anyone can have is just spend 15, 30, 45 minutes at the end of the day, get ready for the next day, be ready to wake up and kick ass and know that you got everything else the day before behind you. Love it. Absolutely love it. Uh, question number two is, who's been the most influential person in your career to date? Yeah. I mean, I go back to my old man. He's, you know, he's been the guy who's inspired me across the way. You know, 
hearing his story, he was a mega commuter in Chicago, you know, moving from the suburbs, drive to you qualify. There's so much about his story that's relevant to what we're trying to accomplish at Revive. And I say second to that, you know, my interaction with Miss Pam, we were never that close, right? She was someone who helped babysit and worked at the school. But, you know, I'm very much inspired by those people who are who are everyday working people trying to make it and and then seeing larger social issues and policy issues that are having a negative impact on them. And, you know, I just, I'm very much inspired by, you know, this idea of the American dream and upward mobility and creating more opportunity for people. And I, I love the fact that real estate, you know, and where it's located and how it's built is very much conducive to all of that. Yeah, completely agree with everything you just said there. Question number three is, what's the most influential tool in your business? Meaning, like, could it be a physical tool, like a phone or a journal? Or is it a piece of software that you just can't run the business without? What is it? I mean, I'm a real estate investor, right? So um, I'm a big music nut. And I remember listening to to one of my favorite bands, uh, Trey Anastasio of Fish, talk about his gear one time. And, he, you know, he talked about his old 80-year-old amp that he's had for decades, right? And he's like, you know, as a guitarist you really just got to know your equipment. Like, you don't, don't worry about getting the next fancy tool. Know your equipment. My equipment is my pro forma, man. It is it is my spreadsheet. It is what I mm-hmm. dive into. When I'm, up, when I'm worried about something at two o'clock in the morning, I'm in the middle of underwriting a project. I know the ins and outs of that spreadsheet. I've built them, you know, and so my, my financial modeling tools are, you know, in my comfort with those tools and the ability to navigate them. To me, that's, you know, that's my spear at the end of the day that, that I that I really keep sharp. So I love it. I'm completely the same way. It's it's sort of someone asked me for mine the other day. I'm like, would McLaren or Red Bull or Ferrari give away their, you know, the recipe, the <laughs> recipe for for driving fast cars in Formula One? No, they wouldn't. It's your Formula One racing car. Yeah. It's you, you, you've tweaked it to the cow sheds and back, you know. So you're you're not going to give it away to anyone. Yeah, for sure. One sentence. What has been the biggest failure in your career, and what did you learn from that failure? You know, I, I did a LinkedIn post on this where I I feel like. I've been quote successful thus far, and hopefully that stays true in building a small boutique development company. My biggest failure in doing it is that I tried to do it all myself. And I look back on it, I wish I'd have found key partners. Now I didn't have strong connections when I moved to San Francisco, right? I had to start all over again, but really I wish I would have done something, either gone work for another developer though. You know, I kind of tried people, my buddy, as my buddy told me, you're not very employable, <laughs> you know, but I wish I would have found more key partners where I could have relayed my areas of expertise versus for the last six, seven years, becoming the jack of all trades, master of none. I think it's an incredibly inefficient way to start a company. I used to think that you could bootstrap a company. You, I don't, I wouldn't recommend trying to bootstrap a private equity company. Maybe you can do it if you're doing software and you're selling a widget. You know, but it's just an incredibly hard business to get into. And I see a lot of people because we have so many gurus out there saying, oh, it's, you know, start a syndication company and apartment investment made easy. I don't, maybe it's easy for those guys. It's been brutal for me and it's been really tough. And I've had a lot of lumps along the way. And I really wish that I would have just, you know, kind of found a key partners and built a few key relationships and maybe, you know, shared more of the pie at first and done it that way than trying to just, you know, trudge through the mud on my own. I love it. But but in saying that there is a element of you have need when you're building any company, right? You have to be wear all the hats in the beginning yep. to understand who you need to go employ and what you're good oh, at and what you're not good at. And it only comes with hindsight that, that that you can look back and say, I wish I'd done that sooner. But that's you needed to go through those lumps because that's probably your journey and that's the way you get to becoming a more efficient business owner and an efficient entrepreneur. 
So Yeah, and it's interesting because that's what my dad always taught me. He said, you know, you need to understand all the facets of the business. And, you know, I... I like to, I like nuance. I like to argue both sides of the ball, right? So I would I agree with your sentiment. There's a lot of truth to that. Obviously, for me, I think it's you got to find a good equivocal balance where you're not putting yourself in situations where what you don't know is causing more and more headaches, right? Because there's mm. that's the thing about real estate investing. And Howard Marks, I love his book. It's always the things you don't know that blow up in your face and really increase risk. And you know sometimes there's a wisdom out there that you just don't, you haven't accrued yet. And you know. Right. That's where that's experience right. matters. So that's exactly correct. Yep. Last question, mate, is where can people reach you to continue the conversation that will be in your sphere? Where do they go? Yeah, just go to re-viv.com. There's a Calendly link on there. You can book a call with me, set up a time to talk. You can look at our G Street deal, which is open. We keep that open so people can understand, you know, the mechanics of a co-living deal. Talk to me about how we underwrite. You know, we don't we don't juice stuff and talk about high returns. We just we talk about our underwriting process and how we keep things simple, middle of the fairway. And, you know, that's all there. And, you know, schedule a call with me and we'll kind of walk you through what we do and how we're doing it and why we're excited about it. Love it, mate. Well, I want to thank you so much for jumping on the today's show. Just some of the things that we're going to reflect back to you. I think the the importance of having a socially aware development company as we start to see old buildings with your energy efficiency and, you know, this, the problems that I'm facing in my own uh, portfolio morph into ways to provide housing in a way that is affordable to the average folk who need to live in certain areas. And it's 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 not just a US problem. It's 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 in Australia, it's in Europe, it's in Mexico, totally. it's in Canada, it's in Africa. It's it's all across, right? Affordable housing is always constantly going to be an issue. It's been an issue for the last 30 30 years is going to be an issue for the next 30 years. So um, constantly trying to sharpen that tool, as you said, mentioned, sharpen that spear before on your modeling uh, with your pro forma, but also the way we think about how we provide housing uh, or revitalize other housings, uh, existing housing, I should say, and then getting the buy-in from, you know, from the local government, which is always tough. It's always challenging. So it's, you know, we haven't solved anything on this podcast. We'll need to be speaking for a lot more, many more years to be coming. But I think just, you know, having that conversation and talking openly about it is the place where we start to really start moving that needle or that ball down the fairway so we can get to our goal of providing that affordable housing for everyone. Did, did I leave anything out there? No, I think you nailed it. And I think the momentum in what we're talking about, it's there. More and more developers, emerging developers, syndicators, you know, private equity people, we're in an interesting time. We're in an exciting time for everything we're talking about. And I think the future is really bright for that. There's a ton of momentum around it. And, you know, I, I love seeing that. It's it's truly inspirational. And I think I think we're going to solve a lot of these problems, you know, in our lifetime. So, yeah, I do too. I do too. All right, mate. Well, look, thank you again for jumping on today's show. Enjoy the rest of your week and we'll catch up very, very soon. My pleasure. Thank you, Reed. Well, there you have another cracking episode jam-packed with incredible episode with Matt. If you want to check out what he does, go over to revive.com. That's R-E-V-I-V.com. Check out his G Street deal up there. It's an example of how he does co-living and walks you through all the underwriting tools, tips, and tricks to get into the co-living space and the returns that he provides to investors. I do really think this is an incredibly important topic that we're talking about. So if you do have any comments around this topic, please reach out to me at info at reedgoosens.com. I want to thank you all again for taking some time out of your day to tune in to continue to grow your financial IQ because it's what we're all about here on this show. The easiest way to give back is to give it a five-star review on iTunes and we're going to do this all again next week. So remember, be bold, be brave and go give life a crack. Hold up. 